Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows you're born naked and the rest is drag. Today we have Zoe, Ozzy, and Adelaide. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about drag, the history of drag in queer communities and why conservatives are so obsessed with targeting drag with current legislation. Also, I would so, like to say that yeah. today on my lunch break, I um, was working on this doc and I read, like we all take lunch together on the farm, and I read to my bosses and coworkers that intro that you wrote and my one boss he was like that's honestly that's so true <laughs> i was like that's so right. deep that's right it's a rupaul quote isn't it yes but yes, okay. i just love I was like that i don't he know heard that before he's like <laughs> yeah exactly he just thought zoe made it up <laughs> i know i love that <laughs> like <laughs> exactly uh. <laughs> um yeah, so in more original thoughts from me that I definitely coined <laughs> myself. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start by talking a little bit about Judith Butler and, you know, kind of more like gender theory around drag. So in Gender Trouble, which is like Judith Butler's probably most famous work, um, they introduced the notion of like gender as performance. And we talked about this, Ozzy talked about this on... What was the episode? Words that mean things? It was words that mean things. Yeah, where we talked about (laughs) performativity um, a little bit. Yes. So there's more on that piece in that episode. Um, But really looking at the relationship between like identity and performativity. Um, So Butler focused on how drag is like a cultural phenomenon that particularly exposes the performative and like fluid nature of gender. So drag for Butler raises like these questions regarding gender identity. And they believe that drag performers reveal the instability of the relationship between assigned sex and gender and between like the binary of being either masculine or feminine. So the construction of gender identities is produced through the repetitive performance of behaviors and like physical stylistic expressions. And without that, the gender binary distinction doesn't really make sense anymore. So drag performance accentuates and kind of radicalizes the norms around gender identity because it's like, what does gender mean if you can present and perform as a different gender and different presentation like from day to day. And so the parody of drag is for Judith Butler, an important way to resist the power structures that regulate our lives and identities by ridiculing normative culture, cultural expressions and performances. So drag aims at destabilizing this quote unquote truth of sexual and gender identity by pointing to the fact that there's no reason that necessitates any constant form of identity. Drag therefore exposes this like social coercion that's at the base of a performative nature of identity. And yeah, really looking at how there's no like essential or initial basis of gender identity, it can be disrupted and broken and resisted and altered um, in so many different ways. And we'll definitely circle back to this as we get into how and why drag is under so much fire in current events. Um, We want to get into some history. First, I have to tell both of you a story from this past weekend. Um, that is exactly yes. what Butler was saying. Perfect. Amazing. So I was at a bar um, and I overheard from like one table over these three people. I strongly assumed they were all cis men. I'm not like positive. I didn't ask them. Um, but the conversation they were having in very like philosophy bro type terms, they were like, Phil- philosophically speaking, it's like, gender if you like gender doesn't even exist philosophically like you could just do whatever you want and like no one can stop you because like gender doesn't mean anything and they were just having this very like we just discovered gender (laughs) conversation um and it did take a lot of my willpower not to be like hello hello it's me (laughs) a non-binary icon did you need a gender (laughs) studies professional (laughs) i was just sitting there being like oh my god and then they were just going back and forth because, like, one of them was kind of doing, like, devil's advocate behavior and the other one was like, yeah, but, like, philosophically, like, you got to think philosophically, there's no gender. I It's it's like the range of how people perceive this, like, normies is so funny because, like, 
again, I was talking about this episode on the farm today because that's kind of what you do. And like one of my coworkers who is an ally, you know, like for real though, like (laughs) he would, he would fucking throw down. Um, He's married to a bi woman, but he himself is a cis straight man. And I've explained the difference between sex and gender before. But it's like sometimes I feel like for some people it doesn't even it, like they can't. It's funny that it's like, yes, the philosophy bros are like, you know, if you really think about it, you can understand also like what gender is, which is a construct like that is what when you think about it philosophically, like what we understand. And also it's like my coworker was like. I was like, you know, grow up, you guys. You could just think about your gender for long enough and just not be cis, you know? And my friend was like, well, you know, who am I to argue with a doctor when I'm born? I'm like, no. <laughs> what? I was like, that is different. That's a wild take. I mean, I just like being like, who the am I? Said that. So, like, <laughs> who am I as an infant to argue with a doctor? <laughs> a newborn babe. Me, a baby? <laughs> <laughs> Me, a small, tiny infant uh. telling a doctor that they're wrong? Anyway, obviously that's such a detraction, but like I just do think obviously when we think about drag, there's going to be a lot of conversation around transness as well, which like relates to gender and cisness and all the things as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to get into some of the history of drag. And so there's like kind of two branches of this that I'm going to get into or roots I guess more is more accurate of a metaphor but so that like informed the drag we know in popular culture kind of today and like how that was informed so one of them the older one here is like cisgender men who would play women in theater which dates back to very early theater productions in ancient Greece and Rome and this was documented as like female impersonation that's what it's called um Of course, like, we don't actually know these people's genders. These might not have been cis men who were playing women, but that was, like, how it was understood. And so um, this is also documented in Japan and China in the 17th and 18th century. Yeah, but the first time that the word drag was used was in the 1860s when Ernest Bolton in Victorian England described his cross-dressing as drag. And people think that this was inspired by the petticoats that people would wear when cross-dressing, like the long coats and how they would drag on the floor. Mm. I love that. I've never heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that's like kind of the earliest documented understanding of like dressing as a quote unquote different gender. But then drag more so as we know it today stems from underground drag ball scenes that became prominent in queer and trans communities of color in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Drag ball culture has been dominated by Black and Latinx performers, like, from the beginning. And there's less known history about the earliest drag balls because they were very secretive due to, like, the risks of playing with gender and sexuality in this way. And therefore, this history section is not incredibly long. Um, but <laughs> so, for particularly for people of color, the drag pageants that did exist were primarily for white people and were very based in, like, more of like a beauty standards and glamour kind of thing. So they created their own ways to perform in in ball. So William Dorsey Swan, who hosted these like dance parties in DC, was the first person to describe himself as a quote unquote queen of drag, um, which obviously is what now is a drag queen. So he was born in an enslaved family in 1858 in Maryland. And his story was widely unknown until 2005 when a writer and historian named Channing Joseph found an 1888 article in the Washington Post about a police raid of Swan's home um, where he would host these gatherings. And the report said that Swan's guests were satin dresses and and fascinators and likely competed in a a cakewalk, a dance resembling voguing that enslaved people had invented to mimic plantation owners. Amazing. So Swan tried to prevent the police from entering, which Joseph writes, allowed a few guests to escape before he was arrested. And these parties went on in secret for years. Invitations happened kind of through like word of mouth, but ran the risk of they could get prostitution and homosexuality charges if and when these parties were busted. So Swan and his drag balls were kind of pioneers in another sense as like defenders of the queer community's right to assemble. Hell yeah. 
And not only did he attempt to fight the 1888 arrest, but in 1896, he was later incarcerated and wrote to President Grover Cleveland to demand a pardon, but that was denied. Bad Buffalonian, Grover Cleveland. Boo, we hate to see it. <laughs> I did not know he was from Buffalo. Yeah, it's uh, when the Pan American whatever was in Buffalo as well. Yeah. What the hell was that Fascinating. called? Fascinating. Yeah, not that interesting. Like, there, I don't even know what you're talking about. Was it like a conference? <laughs> there was or, like no, it was like a national thing that went to different cities, and there was an assassination attempt on Grover Cleveland in at that by a socialist wow. who rules. Just Amazing. saying. <laughs> I'm forgetting their name, but sorry, <laughs> look it up. <laughs> look it up. Google it. Um. Yeah, and then drag balls started to, like, really pop off in New York City during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, and that's what evolved to the Harlem Ballroom community, which is portrayed in um, the documentary Paris is Burning. And so that's probably, like, the most well-known ball scene um, because of that documentary. And so with that, I think we're going to move into talking about the popularization and mainstreaming of drag through popular media. Frick, yeah, we are. Amazing job doing the history, Zoe. (laughs) Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. <laughs> um, so one of the earlier depictions of this that is has been in – well, it wasn't mainstream media when it first came out, but, like, is more mainstream now. Like, people in the queer and trans community know about this movie. It's called Paris is Burning. Um, it was released in 1991. And I recently rewatched this documentary um, at a screening at the Lavender Room. Shout out to the Lavender Room. If you yes, know, you check know. Our episode. Exactly. <laughs> and if you About listen to the, the pod, Lavender. you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this documentary takes a look at the ballroom scene in New York City during the 80s. And things that are now more mainstream, like voguing and throwing shade, have their roots in this scene and obviously in a lot of the earlier things that Zoe was talking about. This documentary was made over seven years, and it offers an intimate portrait of rival fashion houses um, from fierce contests for trophies to house mothers offering sustenance and literal housing in a world rampant with homophobia, transphobia, racism, AIDS, and poverty. And what we mean by houses is like every – the people would – it's like teams. Think about it like teams in a sports way, but it's also like they would take care of one another and particularly the house mother would often be like a queer elder – Um, Even if they weren't, like, that much older than them, but, like, somehow had a bit more stability and was able to, like, teach makeup, teach different things like that, and also help bring um, queer kids in off the street, basically. The documentary features legendary voguers, drag queens, and trans women, including Willie Ninja, Pepper LaBeja, Dorian Corey, and Venus Extravaganza. Um, and Paris is Burning really celebrates the roots of this scene, showing all the beauty and elegance and community. And it's also a very real look at the dangers of being queer and a person of color in the 80s. Um, you know, it's, it, there is so much of it that is like light and beautiful, but you will be in tears by the end. Like, because there's a lot of fucked up shit that happens to queer and trans people. And obviously at the time, the AIDS crisis was fully happening as well. So that was an additional factor. Yeah. I just want to add to like some of the importance of the documentary back to what I was saying with history is that there's such little documentation of like ball and drag scenes. And it was of course like much more, much wider of a thing than just New York city, but because of the danger, there's just not a lot of, the information was mostly word of mouth. There isn't a lot of like actual documentation. And so Paris is Burning is one of like seldom true depictions of that time. Exactly. Um, And I briefly want to touch on Madonna because, you know, she has her song Vogue. 
Um, And I think a lot of people who were around, like, like Madonna, I think a lot of people literally think that Madonna kind of started Vogue, (laughs) Voguing, Um, because she popularized it in this really, really mainstream way, Um, which is really funny because what obviously where it comes from is Madonna was very like tapped into the queer community and went to these events and was very like interested and inspired by that that was going on. Um, So I do think it's just funny from like a music standpoint that like Certainly, because I was, like, someone who listened to music all throughout my childhood, like, that was my first, um, like... Oh, yeah, for sure. I feel like contact. it was mine as well. I mean, just, like, that song being the first way that I heard about voguing. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, obviously, that's not, like, about voguing and about the ballroom scene, but I do think it's important to think about, like, its place in culture. Yeah, and I feel like it helped, like, popularize it at the time, too. Like, I mean, not necessarily the actual original form, but it, like, put that word into, like, a more mainstream audience, which obviously, like, for good and bad, but I feel like it did, that was, like, a big step in cis straight people sort of knowing what, like, queer dancing or drag looked like or was like. Oh, for sure. And, like, again, at a time where... With the AIDS crisis, like, everything about queerness and transness being even more taboo, um, having her do that was, like, also pretty monumental at the time. For sure. Um, Okay. We're gonna move on to a complicated figure, and that is RuPaul. And there's, there's a lot here. Like... I'm not a hater, I want to be clear, but, you know, RuPaul's a complicated figure. Um, He's now wealthy, which, like, obviously he did not start that way, but, like, we know what it's like when there's wealthy people. Um, He is a fracker, which I'm going to explain a bit more in a second. And he was not great as it relates to transness for a very long time, slash, like, now he's slightly better, but... It's mainly because of community pressure as it relates to RuPaul's Drag Race, the show specifically. RuPaul also was acting and um, is in my favorite queer movie of all time, but I'm a cheerleader um, as just like an amazing character. Um, And so as it relates to fracking... Um, In 2020, RuPaul revealed in a conversation, like he was being interviewed by NPR, and he had begun leasing out his Wyoming ranch to multiple oil companies for the purpose of fracking. Um, If you don't know what fracking is, it's a specific way of getting out natural gas from the ground. And the way that it happens is by fracturing what's typically shale, bedrock, under the ground with um, like high pressure water and getting the cracks of natural gas that pockets that live in that rock um, and using that for energy. It's a very toxic way of getting natural gas. He's allowing these companies access to the property's water reserves. And so these companies can potentially poison the area's water sources And so all that bad, yes. And I just want to say that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that he and his husband had no choice um, because unless you own 100% of the fossil fuel rights underneath your land and the vast majority of ranchers don't, you can't prohibit oil and gas development. Like you don't have a choice. So... That's, I just wanted to say all of that because, you know, I think people bring that up a lot and it is bad and it's good to know that it's bad. And also there's a lot of like legal bullshit that oil and gas companies have power over even wealthy landowners. I love the form of capitalism. Like, I was just going to say like the fact that you can't stop like oil and gas like even private property still has to be subservient to oil and gas interests 
Yeah, I love the form of capitalism where you can own land, but you can't own the land under your land. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's different. Eminent domain bullshit. Uh-huh. But uh, I feel like the other thing about RuPaul is, like, I feel like people bring up the fracking thing because it's, like, it's sort of funny for someone who's, like, a queer icon or, like, right. you know, framing themselves as this progressive figure to be doing fracking, which is, like, even by, like, liberal progressives' own sort of definitions, like, something that they're supposed to be against for the most part, I think. Maybe that's not even true anymore, but... Um, but I feel like it's like RuPaul also just has that thing that's like, so like Madonna, like, you know, he has like, gotten very famous for something that a lot of people do. And I think there's like some degree to which he maybe hasn't like, credited that or mm. like given back to that community, such as like with his views on trans women and saying that he initially said like a few years ago that he would never allow a trans woman on Drag Race because that's like, different from being a cis gay man who does drag um or i guess just a cis man who does drag um even though there have been closeted trans women on the show who didn't come out because it wasn't allowed right um at the time that they were on um and i guess just like i'm thinking about this because i was just watching this um i was doing this research about this black woman in new york who is trans and did sex work and made this whole documentary about black trans women sex workers in new york um and there's like part of this documentary that shows how rupaul like really early in his career before he was famous would like go to these docks where trans women were working and kind of like do a little like gonzo journalism like hey like what are your tits real like what hi i'm rupaul and would just kind of like go around and like basically like in my read, do this kind of, like, extractive journalism of, like, mm -hmm. taking these women's stories and trauma and, like, repurposing that and spinning that into this, like, fun thing for, like, predominantly cis queer audiences. Um, and now, today, like, there's many straight viewers of Drag Race as well. Um, so I guess it was just interesting to me to see that I think, like, that attitude of like not really giving back to the queer community has like been there from, from that the early in his career right. um even though like i totally agree that like i think overall rupaul being famous is like a net good at least like in comparison to just not having that and not having like any mainstream representation of drag like i think most people who do drag even underground drag are like i'm glad that this is more mainstream, even mm -hmm. if I'm not glad that, like, it's RuPaul who's famous for it. Um, well, yeah, because and getting rich off of it. You have people in rural places who are like, I want to be a drag performer. If they go to tell their parents or their friends that, like, say it's like a safe thing right. to do that, they their parents or friends can know what that is. Totally. And even, like, I mean, there's so many places that don't have, like, an active drag scene. Like, you have to be a sizable enough place to have that. And so I still think there's something very valuable in, like, rural and, like, just people living in places that don't have as active of a queer scene to have something like that, I think is, yeah, like, like I'm saying, like, I think it's still a net positive versus not having it. That said, like, RuPaul as a human, I'm, like, I could take or leave him. I wish someone else had this fame, but like, it's fine. At least, at least we have some like mainstream drag thing. Yeah, for sure. So what we're talking about, in case you have lived under a rock, is RuPaul's Drag Race. It started in February of 2009. Um, it started out on this little niche cable channel called Logo. Um, the show followed nine drag queens. It's usually now up to like 14, I think, when they start or something. Um, and originally, this competition really, it was very clear that it parodied and exalted the reality show fair that dominated TV at the time, which we definitely have gotten into a little bit more with our Ultimatum episodes. Um, it was part America's Next Top Model, part Project Runway, sometimes American Idol, like a pinch of jackass, and the series was scrappy as fuck and started with like a 20th... $20,000 prize for the winner. Um, now it's up to a million dollars, I believe. I should double check that, but I think... A million? What is it? It's something bigger. It's like 500000 or something. 
I honestly don't know. Well, I feel like the only game show prize I can quote is are you the one because they make them yell every episode <laughs> that's right million dollars right and they have but, to split it so like probably less yeah than a million, so it, it might be less it's fine but obviously a million is a possible reality show prize we just don't know if that's this reality show's prize right <laughs> yeah i just honestly don't know but right um the camera like the first season it's like it almost looks like the camera smeared with vaseline oh the, my god yeah it's so funny <laughs> the panel of judges were not camera ready um it's a it's a different vibe um but of course at this point it's been 14 years and it's much more mainstream they they hit um 200 episodes recently um and you know, it's a cultural staple, particularly among queer men, but like also throughout the queer community and straight communities as well. Um, there's watch parties around the country and there's also spinoffs. So there's um, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, which is like the winners from different seasons can compete against each other, as well as Drag Race UK, Drag Race Canada, stuff like that, where it's like a little bit of a spinoff, but still the same vibe yeah i wanted to also talk about speaking of drag shows um the boulet brothers who are a drag duo that hosts the show um dragula people don't Amazing. actually really know about their personal lives unlike rupaul like they're not seen in public out of drag like that is their full public persona um quick brag when i worked at a magazine i had to transcribe an interview of them and their voices sound so similar it was an a nightmare um not their fault but they have really similar voices and having totally. to decipher who was talking i was like i don't know yes no that's totally happened to me before like even if people just have similar accents or whatever it can just sometimes be like oh like who what who's talking yeah and like they've worked together for so long now that they also like say similar things like so it wasn't that clear like who would this be right right <laughs> um but anyway yeah so they're known for quote-unquote spooky drag or filth drag and this form of drag places a lot less emphasis or like no emphasis on gender and it's more about horror and spookiness and this has also made their show just a lot more gender diverse from the beginning unlike what Addie was talking about with RuPaul that almost exclusively focuses on drag queens and like the kind of glamour of it from the beginning, Dragula has included trans and non-binary folks in every season of the show and encourages people to just, like, play with outfits and gender in whatever way they want to. So it's more so, like, you know, extreme, like, costume and persona, but not that has to do with, like, masculinity or femininity. And I wanted to share a quote from um, Swanthula, who is one of the Boulet brothers. Yes. Who said, I think it goes back full circle to our nightlife days. Oh, for context, they started by and still do host um, a lot of, like, nightlife events and also have the show. Back to the quote. We created events that were intended to inspire people to come out of the closet and to be who they wanted to be and to live out their secret fantasies. It was a no-judgment, don't-dream-it-be-it sort of environment. If you wanted to be a burlesque queen with a mustache, great. If you wanted to be a super masculine presented lesbian in vinyl armor and high heel boots, fantastic. We help people be who they are and they loved us for that. And I think also just kind of going back to RuPaul, it's much more primarily at least like queer cis men who have to like perform femininity and be like as feminine as possible versus like playing with gender in whatever ways people want to. Exactly. We love to play with gender. <laughs> we we love a show where goth is the gender. Well, that's also the vibe. Like, I'm like, how have I not watched this yet? Like, that's... Oh, my I God, can't... you haven't? Mm -mm. Okay, we're watching it today. I actually, I also haven't. <gasps> I really need to, though. Oh, my God. Okay, we're having a watch party. Let's do it. Yes, please. It, okay, yes. Wow. I'm obsessed. I can't believe I just learned this about both of you on air, but we'll <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. What? <laughs> I know, you know, sometimes we out here not on our spooky bullshit, which is garbage, to be honest. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes we're all learning here at Season of the Bitch. Very true. Yes, I'm listening. I'm learning. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, so we also wanted to talk about the show Pose, um, which is different than everything we've mentioned so far because it is a fictional account, although it is, of course, based on real things. So it is about that ballroom scene in Paris's burning. Um, but it is like a fictionalized account. Uh, the series has the largest number of trans people on camera and behind the scenes on a TV show ever. I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It has two Afro-Latina leads, India Moore and MJ Rodriguez, and an Afro-Latino creator and executive producer, Stephen Canals. Um, already a phenomenal Tony-winning Broadway talent, Billy Porter, earned his first long overdue Emmy at the age of 50 um, for this show and became the first openly gay black man to win the award. The popularization of this show really helped to bring a lot of these concepts and lingo like work, shade, yas, into the zeitgeist culture along with RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, Most importantly... Pose showed trans people and specifically black and Latinx trans people loving one another. There's not TV that really shows that. For Uh, sure. (laughs) And that is the central focus of this show. This show will simultaneously build you up and tear you down because it's like so beautiful and so well done and there's so many incredible heartfelt moments and then of course, it's like there's all the very fucked up things that come with what we've already discussed. And this this cast is seen like supporting one another, forming a community, looking after one another, forging bonds, being resilient together. Images that are literally life-saving um, for many people um, because we are still living in a time where merely existing as a trans person is considered – is deadly or dangerous or depending where you live like a crime so um the show is done now they finished their last season but i do highly recommend it definitely like take it in chunks because it can be heavy but it is some of the best television there is yeah i I really enjoyed it as well um, so I think now we wanted to move to talk a little bit about where things are at with the current state of drag bands in this country. Um, and I wanted to give first, like, a little specific history of Drag Story Hour and, like, when, how this, like, drag with children has become sort of a cultural flashpoint. Um, so this has been, like, at least since the early 2000s, something that, like, was known to have happened, like, folks in the drag community are, like, that we would occasionally have events where kids would be there. Um, There was at least one reading by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence um, for this order of queer and trans nuns based in the Bay Area. Um, They did, like, a reading, a drag reading for children specifically. Um, But the very beginning of, like, an actual event that was called like drag queen story hour and branded as that um was in 2015 so it was first started by michelle t and some other folks through this artistic collaborative known as radar productions um some other folks involved were julian delgado lopera and virgie tovar um and they basically were the ones who first put on an event that was called this um, so some of the first drag queens who were involved, I think Mother Chucka was the first queen to do a drag queen story hour that was called that. Um, and then there were other folks, Eve St. Croissant, Persia, Little Miss Hot Mess, and Honey Mahogany are all drag queens who were involved in like the early days of this. Um, so they did, initially it would be like kind of similar to like a lot of other drag shows like at a bar or some other business um then it sort of evolved and they started doing a lot more readings in public libraries so that was primarily for kids and their families um and it expanded from there to become this like recurring event that would happen around the bay area um and like as there was expanding 
desire for this and folks being like, this is something cool that we like. Um, it started to expand beyond that. Um, and one of the first queens who did this, Honey Mahogany, um, was saying that she remembers like the first event she was at, there were probably like 30 kids um, and it was like kids and families. And it was mostly for like the parents of the kids. Like it was a lot of queer parents who were like, we miss going to drag brunch on a Sunday. Like you can't bring your kids to a bar often. So like, or you don't want to possibly. Um, so this was like a way that they could still have like basically a community space for like queer parents. Um, and that was sort of like the initial need that led to this. But from that point, it evolved to where like, they would get a lot of like, queer and gender non-conforming kids, kids who were experimenting with their gender. Um, and that became such a big piece of things that at a certain point they did like a drag prom for young kids where they could come dressed however they wanted. Um, and for a lot of them, that would be like the first chance they had to dress as a gender other than the one they were assigned at birth. Um, and it became like this space for queer and trans kids also to have like space to explore. Um, yeah, and, obviously it's like yeah. ridiculous regardless, but just like thinking about that, the idea that people are like, that like drag queens are like finding your kids when it's like no this is very much like kids right. being like brought it's a into this space thing i mean it's, yes. also, yeah, it's often indoors so you have to choose to go in right but, you're yes. choosing queer to people go. are too busy we're yeah. not looking like, for your kids yeah. <laughs> right and like the like you're saying like a lot of them are queer parents like these kids already have queer parents they're exposed to queerness right. like often like it's like when it's for the parents it's like these were literally babies so it's just like there's no chance they were absorbing anything beyond like colors pretty but like, right yeah um but yes for sure um and yeah i guess so um like even at this first event um that i was talking to honey mahogany about um they had like one or two protesters outside um which you know is not a lot but it's like even even this first thing there were some people who were like this would be a good thing to target even if it was just like one lone crazy person imagine um, being a lone protester Ew. yeah at least like, like a guy with a essentially sign. like a little party like you're just kind of sad by yourself and just it's like kind yelling of hilarious Yes, and, like, like, obviously at this first event there were, like, 30 kids, so all of their parents just, like, blocked the one protester. Um, right. It was, like, like, very easy. Oh, my God. Which, I'm just honestly, like, a one-person protest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's funny is, like, still, I would say from what I hear, it's mostly, like, counter-protesters vastly outnumber protesters. Um, even today where there's, like, it's become a bit more of an organized thing folks are just not that good like most of them are just online all the time and are not that good at organizing people they're not that good at turning people out to like do a rally um so it's just that's that's a struggle that they have um but like obviously since that time it has become a bit more of a thing um and honey mahogany was saying like even at that time there was like the San Francisco Chronicle did a story about this, then it became like a trending topic on Facebook. Um, so that sort of opposition and like right wing fomenting anger about this has always been there. Um, but obviously, we're starting to see it become more of a concrete legal thing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about where the legal stuff is at. Um, and then I think we also wanted to talk just a bit about like some of the queerphobic and transphobic violence that we've seen recently because I think it's impossible to talk about like visible displays of gender fuckery without talking about how that's been playing out in terms of like that being dangerous um in in recent weeks um so about 20 states in total have legislation that's either introduced or in most cases has been moved forward by some type of state legislative committee, like some level of the House or Senate has been like, yes, let's keep talking about this, but it hasn't passed yet. Um, and then in a few cases, the legislation has already been passed by one of the two state bodies, like either the House or Senate, and it's like waiting for approval or disapproval from the other. Um, so 
within that subset, there are four states that have actually passed drag bans, like they've been signed into law. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about where things are at in each state. I just want to preface this by saying, like, in order to not fearmonger, as of this moment, there are no states with active laws against drag. Like, there is no state where the law is you can be arrested for doing drag. Every state that has a law like that on the books, a judge has paused it and said, mm. you can't enforce this. The police can't arrest you. Now, obviously, as we know, the police don't follow the law. So that really has to be taken with a grain of salt. Like, even Wait, without Aussie, these laws what? on the books. <laughs> First time hearing of this. Um, but, you know, it's like, so so that you know your rights as a queer trans person in these states, like, that that is where things are at. Um, but those things are not final. So it's like a temporary injunction, which basically means the judge is like, I don't know whether or not this is legal. So I'm just going to say don't enforce it until the case is over. Um, the fact that they said don't enforce it instead of enforce it does, like, slightly lean towards, like, this could have really bad impact, so let's, like, not let this happen right away. Um, but it's not, like, a final ruling on whether these laws are actually okay, whether they're constitutional or not, which is sort of the big question. Um, so we really do not know yet, like, what that is going, what that response from the courts will be. No judges have given final rulings on this yet. Um, there was a final ruling in a case about a ban on healthcare for trans kids. Um, so on Tuesday, June 20th, a federal judge ruled that Arkansas can't ban gender affirming healthcare for trans kids, um, which is good news in the sense that it sort of it, it gives a sign of like how courts could how other courts could interpret this. We obviously don't know for sure if like other judges will feel the exact same way but it's like it's a sign that these types of policies are maybe not going to be able to continue but it's also like this could still get appealed um but that's like i don't know that's the only sort of clear sign we've had of like where these rulings might go um so it's like that yes that's a good sign but it's not final so the first state that passed a drag ban was tennessee um, and that was in March. Um, so this law was, the literal text of the law was, you can't have a performance, quote, in a location where the performance could be viewed by a person who is not an adult. Um, so obviously- that's are that, so stupid. Yeah, like, it's just like, I mean, also this is part of why some legal experts think this isn't likely to be able to remain on the books is because it's so broad that it could cover almost anything, like, de depending on how exactly the laws are worded. Um, also, so as we were saying, like, drag usually happens in places that you have to be 21 or older to get into. Right. Like, it's like, if there is going to be something that is inappropriate for children, it's already going to be like that enforcement mechanism is already there. Like um, this and isn't like, happening. Right. <laughs> it's it's not it's not an issue. And also like states already have laws about like kids not being able to see nudity or whatever, like public decency, like those kinds of things already exist. Um, so basically the judge who put the temporary injunction on this and was like, this let's not enforce this right now um said that the law is quote unconstitutionally vague and substantially overbroad um and then the ruling later continued um the ruling is overbroad quote because it applies to public property or anywhere a minor could be present unquote so basically like this is it's like a good sign that judges are saying like because we know how conservative courts can be in this country like the fact that a judge is like, this is too broad, is a good sign. I think... Oh, wait, Zoe, did you want to say something about Dolly? I did. Okay. Um, Just because Tennessee is Dolly Parton's home state, Um, I just wanted to share some of Dolly's stance on drag because it, it's yes, a little, a little pick-me-up, a little, a little light. <laughs> Um, so notably, Dolly Parton has said that if she was not born as a woman, she would have been a drag queen. 
um, because she loves, we love our high femme icon. And also, so there are drag contests that are like Dolly Parton drag contests. So everyone in the contest is doing Dolly impersonations. And Dolly has entered these competitions, like her own drag competitions as herself and lost to drag queens who were better at being Dolly than Dolly herself. That is amazing. I'm oh, obsessed with that. Sorry. I was trying to figure out what um my fan was on. No, you're good. I was trying to figure out what state it was in, but there's a lot of um queer musicians who have also brought out drag queens onto their stage. Like I know Haley Kiyoko was one of them. And in states where these types of legislature was going on and like, you know, asked if they wanted to continue to be part of the performance, like and all that sort of thing, but like really also giving a platform where they still could be seen by a large audience that may include minors um, to, again, show that it's like totally fine and try to normalize it. But obviously no one can be as iconic as Dolly, but there, I, all that to say, there's just some other folks doing it too. Amazing. Um, okay, also I just wanted to say so the judge in Tennessee did actually like fully strike down this law. Oh, so yeah. this was not actually a temporary injunction. It was like a full, this is not okay. Now, again, that can still be appealed. Like this is probably going to go to the Supreme Court eventually. Um, but it's, it is a good sign that a judge was like, this is unconstitutional. Um, anyway, so the other three states that have laws like this on the books that are being challenged to different degrees um, are Arkansas, um, which there was this bill that was signed into law in February that has basically had to continually be amended because they're worried that it will be found unconstitutional otherwise, because again, it's so broad, it could apply to almost any public performance, essentially. Um, so that one is sort of is being challenged, but also has been like edited by Republicans themselves to be less extreme. Um, then another one of the states that has these is Florida, um, where that was signed into law in May, um, also being challenged, and Montana, which also um, signed similar thing into law in May. Um, and Montana was the first state to specifically put like reading to children in public schools and libraries in this law, um, which I think is just interesting because it's like, even as we're seeing judges be like, this is too broad, it's like, they're coming back and being like, okay, we'll be more specific. You can't use public money to do this. Um, so it's sort of like, just threatening in the sense of like, possible ways for Republicans to continue pushing these forward with some degree of specificity to get around these legal problems. Um, but it's also interesting because it specifically names what has sort of gone unspoken in the other versions of these laws that all sort of say like public cabaret performance, like they don't specifically say drag in schools and that's, this one does. Um, Okay, I was going to talk about Colorado, but honestly, I don't think it's that interesting. Basically, Colorado has this bill that was passed before Tennessee's that some advocates are worried could be used to apply to drag shows um, that was like, it was focused on indecent exposure, which again is something that like most states have indecent exposure laws already. Um, so there's been some activism within Colorado about that law, which I think is great. And like, honestly, even if it's not going to be specifically saying drag, I do feel like it will probably be used more to target queer and trans people. So it seems great to challenge it no matter what. But that's the one like you'll often see people say like about 21 states have done this. And it's because Colorado, it's like sort of arguable whether or not this was part of the broader like vibe that, of anti-trans legislation we've seen mm -hmm. um but anyway so that's that's where things stand legally um and i think like again there's not much legal power right now to actually do anything about drag shows i think the bigger concern is things like um i don't know like the military just said that like there can't be drag shows at their 
bases anymore or like there have been events canceled in states where these bans have passed because people just aren't sure like will this be enforced or not or even if it's off the books like will there be a ton of protesters it's become such a like an issue that feels like inherently dangerous like being at a drag show um and something that honey mahogany said about this um who's the drag queen i mentioned who was involved in the early days of this um she was just saying like it's really frustrating that like people who otherwise would be excited to go to a drag show um or specifically a drag story hour now don't want to because they feel like it might be unsafe right. to bring their kids there because there might be like a crazy conservative person there um and that's obviously very frustrating um and i think like you know that is abstract in a sense but we have also um in the month of july um and this month seen several um instances of hate violence and specifically hate murders that appear to have been motivated by someone's sort of public display of queerness or gender nonconformity um or their alliance with that mm -hmm. um and i think it's notable that those things have mostly happened in relatively liberal areas or right. areas that we might think this would not happen right um so one thing i wanted to mention that actually just happened this past friday um was in california um this woman who owned a clothing store and had a pride flag hanging outside of it um was shot and killed by this guy who made comments about the pride flag and was like clearly angry about the pride flag um and that is why he killed this woman um she was not queer herself she was an ally um a lot of people in the community have said that she was really great about standing up for the queer people that she knew um and you know she was killed because she literally just had a pride flag hanging on her business um this was in san bernardino county which is like basically the area between la and las vegas so you know those are two major cities that are also sort of you know known for being like queer and or burlesque friendly um but i just think it's like it's it's a, an area where you wouldn't necessarily think something like this would happen um it's in california which is a liberal state um but this still happened there um and then similarly um also quite recently on july 28th um this man named o'shea sibley was killed um and i know Addie wanted to talk a little bit more about that yeah this one this one shook me to my core a little bit and part of that is because regardless of drag like dancing is so i don't know intrinsic and so this is like such a rough one i mean they're all rough to be clear but like this one yeah, resonated but, with me in a weird way yeah um so as ozzy was saying o'shea sibley um was a 28 year old black gay man and dancer like an incredible dancer and he was killed at a brooklyn gas station um after a group of men confronted sibley and his friends who were playing beyonce and voguing Sibley and his friends were dancing at the pump while listening to the Renaissance album, and then they were approached by a group who demanded they stop dancing. Sibley and a friend, Otis Pina, responded to the aggressors who had begun to use anti-gay slurs. Pina told the New York Times that he said, stop saying that. There's nothing wrong with being gay. After some back and forth, one person pulled out a knife and stabbed Sibley while Pina tried to intervene. I think this one also resonates with a lot of us because this happened in Brooklyn. Like, and again, like, it's kind of just a thing that I think stopped us all a little short because we can often think of urban spaces as a bit more of safe havens. But, like, obviously hate can grow anywhere. Yeah, definitely. I think um... – it's also striking to me that the the person who's been arrested for this murder is 17 years oh, old. Right. Yeah, and so just important. having, like, someone that young, like, seemingly be so homophobic already, mm -hmm. like, that also is quite um, startling, I guess. 
Well, and it's like um, you can um, go back to our rise of the religious right as, you know, part of that as well, because it's absolutely connected. Absolutely, yes. Um, and it, it seems likely that some form of Christian indoctrination was involved mm-hmm. in this specific case. Um, Didn't so he, like, lie one, and try oh. to say he was Muslim so that people... Yeah, I'm not sure if... It, it's sort of unclear, like, what he is trying to say about it but there were like initial reports that the he and his group were saying like we're muslim don't do that because it's against our religion um later the person who's been arrested his lawyer put out a statement that was like he's not muslim he's a good christian boy um and it's uh, yeah it's sort of unclear like are they trying to say that to make him look better for like jurors or like I, yeah, it's it, it's a little unclear, but it seems like he was Christian and, like, went to a church. And if the radicalization was religious, it could have come from there. But, um, yeah. Uh, so one other uh, thing we wanted to talk about um, that also happened in July was um, this man was killed in Portland um, on July 2nd, um, and he was uh, defending his friend who was, like, facing homophobic harassment um, and basically was stabbed for defending his queer friend. Um, I think with all three of these incidents, honestly, there has been this note of, like, um, I think, like, with O'Shea Sibley as well, his friends who were there said that he was, like, defending them, and that's why he became the target specifically. Um, like, in these cases, it isn't even that, like, it doesn't matter what the person's actual identity is. Two mm-hmm. of the people killed were not queer, but they were defending other queer people or, like, allying themselves by having a pride flag up as a business. Um, and, like, that that in itself is like a policing of drag or gender non-conforming expression because if you know that going out dressed like that is likely to invite harassment or could lead to you being killed or your friend being killed like that has a huge impact impact. on people's ability to like express themselves um and so like even though these laws seem like they're probably not going to last in the long term they are part of this like sweeping sort of transphobic and homophobic wave um in sort of mainstream culture that is having an impact on people's minds and psyches even if it won't have like a literal legal impact in that sense um it's still yeah it's still clearly causing harm yeah, we talked about this on the podcast, I don't know, a while ago, but um, it's like part of minority stress theory, right, that even if these laws don't come to fruition, the like stress of being marginalized in that way and knowing that it's a possibility still has lasting effects regardless of whether or not the laws actually happen. Like the amount that this is in current events and the amount that queer and trans people are being attacked has lasting implications on on people's mental health and like ability to just live joyful fucking lives mm-hmm. exactly i feel like that's such a dark note to on that on. note and yeah that um, is really where we're at <laughs> everyone go watch dragula if you haven't take care I think of for... each other <laughs> yes go hug your yes. friends Get that oxytocin, right, because, you know, we all out here struggling with mental disorders because of this garbage, so yeah, let's, let's just be together, you know? It's so, you know what, I, here's, here's what I will leave us with, because I, I was talking to um, this author, Casey Plett, who I love, and I was asking her, because she writes about how she maintains this sort of optimism about strangers, even though she's literally been sexually assaulted by a stranger. Um, and I was just like, like, how? Like, just literally, like, how do you do this? Um, and she did not answer that question, but she did say that she just does. And she finds some sort of strength in the fact that even though she and everyone she knows has experienced things like this from like 
instances of violence from strangers she also sees those people every day go out and like get on the subway and go to work or like like choose to be in the world despite that um and that even that even if you're not able to be like as unedited yourself as you might want like even that is an act of bravery um and that made me feel slightly better so (laughs) definitely the other place that you can feel slightly better and be in community with a really uplifting and incredible <laughs> queer and trans community. Is, is that- where, Addie? It's by going to <laughs> patreon.com slash season of the bitch. It's our Discord. We fucking love our Discord. Um, yes. And one of the only good places on the internet. Literally. Yep. I'm Facts. so obsessed. Um. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter or whatever it's called these days at Season of the Bee. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can buy some merch on our website, seasonofthebee.com. And that's it. Love you. Love you. Love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bitch.